Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're playing you back one of my favourite shows on the life and legacy of the philosopher Epicurus as we go in search of how to live a happier life and no better show as we head into the summer. We had an absolutely brilliant panel of experts that evening. Professor James Warren, Professor of Ancient Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, Professor Monica Gale, Professor in Classics at Trinity College Dublin, Dr Martin Brady, the Head of the School of Classics at UCD, Professor David Constant, Professor of Classics at NYU, uh, Professor Tim O'Keefe of Georgia State University, and we also heard from Dr Catherine Wilson, uh, Visiting Presidential Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York and author of How to Be an Epicurean, and Dr John Sellers, Reader in Philosophy at Royal Holloway, the University of London, and the author of The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness. As I say, an absolutely star-studded expert panel who were debating the life and legacy and wisdom of Epicurus, and I hope you enjoy it. Tonight's debate is on Epicurus. Born on a Greek island around the year 340 BC, Epicurus was a popular but controversial philosopher who believed in maximising simple pleasures and minimising pain. After his death, Epicureanism had a long and lasting legacy and influenced writers, philosophers and other figures. And today there are many books about how to apply his ideas to live a better and a happier life. So in tonight's show, we're going to explore that legacy. And to help me do that, I'm delighted to welcome Welcome our panel of experts. Professor James Warren is Professor of Ancient Philosophy at the University of Cambridge and is a Fellow in Philosophy at Corpus Christi College. An expert on ancient philosophy, his books include Facing Death, Epicurus and His Critics, and later this year, Regret, a Study in Ancient Moral Psychology. Professor Monica Gale is Professor in Classics at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on the poetry of the late Roman Republic and the Augustan period and most recently co-edited the book Texts and Violence in the Roman World. Dr Martin Brady is the head of the School of Classics at UCD and is an expert on the ancient epic tradition and on Latin and ancient Greek languages. Professor Tim O'Keefe is Director of Graduate Studies at Georgia State University and is an expert on Hellenistic philosophy and Epicurus and he's published extensively on Epicureanism including two Two books, Epicurus on Freedom and articles on topics such as Epicureans on Freedom of Action, Friendship, Justice and Death. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Catherine Wilson, visiting Presidential Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York and the author of How to Be an Epicurean, The Ancient Art of Living Well and Dr. John Sellers, Reader in Philosophy at Royal Holloway, the University of London, and the author of The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness. But Martin, I'm going to begin with you because you're the head of a school, uh, the School of Classics. Epicurus was the head of a school of philosophy. And I'm wondering what was his school like and how did Epicurus want us to live our lives? I can tell you one thing for sure. If you wanted to study at uh, either of our schools, I think you'd definitely pick Epicurus's over mine. Epicurus is entirely focused on pleasure. What he defines that pleasure as is quite complex and quite nuanced. And of course, we'll have opportunities to chat about that during the hour. But uh, the study of pleasure, I think, is somewhat different from the study of Latin verbs and Greek nouns and all the boring day-to-day things. Oh, come on, the students are all back tomorrow. You can't be like uh, uh, demoralising them with uh, with with. Uh, uh, like the, I'm sure when you get into all of this, the Epicurus stuff and Caesar and everything, they're 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 full of excitement. 
There'll be thrills and spills when they come round to it, for, for definite. But I think our mode of teaching is probably more engaged, more about the community, more about the body politic, more about how to involve yourself in public life than Epicurus's is for definite. Epicurus had a garden on the outskirts of Athens. It's a secluded, it's a private space. So Epicurus's philosophy is a kind of private philosophy. For him, what pleasure is, is really not the kind of mad hedonistic lifestyle that we might associate with the first year undergraduate experience, which I'm quite certain from having met our students on Friday, they're all going to come back to as quickly as possible, and we wish them the best with that. But for Epicurus, that kind of pleasure is associated with pain. You know, drinking is associated with hangovers. Fine eating is associated with indigestion. What he sees as pleasure is more properly defined as the absence of pain, the absence of suffering, that you find pleasure in not being hurt, in not being pained, in not being harmed. And it all comes from a kind of materialistic belief. Epicurus is very much like modern scientists, Dawkins figures, if you like, in that his philosophy is atheist, materialist in nature. He believes everything fundamentally comes down to atoms. There are no gods. If there are gods, they exist so many millions of miles away that they aren't really concerned with human cares. So where we find meaning is in how we choose to live our own lives. So our own definition of virtue, our own definition of vice. He notices that babies seek out pleasure rather than pain, and he assumes this is our nature. This is, he assumes that this is the fundamental kind of driving force behind humanity. We seek out what is pleasurable and we avoid what painful. And he seems to have been a very quotable or is a very quotable philosopher. There's uh, a huge amount of quotations that have survived and that have been used by other writers and philosophers. And, uh, and, and is that part of his attraction and appeal to people? Very much so. And it's not just that uh, Epicurus is quotable himself, but more so that he has a wide range of very articulate, very literate followers. These literate and articulate followers, because they are Epicureans, they are not burdened with political careers or public careers, so they can spend all their time writing poetry, casting words, writing literature that extols the virtues of the Epicurean life. There's a philosopher, Philodemus, who we've just discovered recently at Herculaneum, buried beneath the volcanic mud, who comes out with this epigram, Don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get. What is terrible is easy to endure. That's a little bit of a 1% rather than a 99% philosophy, of course. It's the kind of thing that might be spoken by a man who had enjoyed abundant privilege through his life. But nevertheless, this is a very concise and a very elegant summing up of the Epicurean philosophy. And Martin, do you think uh, his philosophy has been simplified down through the ages so much that when people say Epicurean now, they think of elaborate food halls or they think of, <laughs> you know, uh, things that are involving pleasure, pleasurable activities. But it's it's really a, a very simplified and, uh, and it's not really authentic in any way. I do well remember the Epicurean food centre off Lower, Li Lower Liffey Street which uh, I don't think, uh, unless I'm wrong, has survived the last 18 months, unfortunately. But that was a fine place to eat with its wide range of rich and exotic cuisines, for sure. And even in the ancient world, Epicurean philosophy was in danger of being misinterpreted that way. Uh, the last time I was here chatting with you, Patrick, we were talking about Horace. We were talking about the Roman poet Horace and his love of leisure and... Uh, the finer things in life. Horace saw himself as an Epicurean. He described himself as sleek, and fat, a hog, 
well cared for, one of Epicurus's herd. So he saw himself as a pig in that he was enjoying and eating the finer things in life. And he viewed this as a kind of expression of Epicurean philosophy. That's not Epicureanism as Epicurus would have intended it, but that's a very tempting, I think, kind of line to fall into and path to follow if you believe that pleasure is the ultimate goal of human existence. Tim, it's interesting when we talk about his philosophy, a lot of it comes back to this idea of, of the happy life. And how did he believe that we could best have a happy life? Yep. So for Epicurus, the main thing that determines whether you're going to have a happy life or not is your character, the type of person you are. So um, that's where virtue comes in. So um, a lot of ancient Greek ethicists think that virtue is central to gaining happiness. For Epicurus, because he thinks that happiness just is pleasure, although pleasure understood as mainly the absence of pain and peace of mind. For Epicurus, virtue is really central because it's going to help bring you that peace of mind. So he thinks, for instance, that if you have out-of-control desires, if you're immoderate, that leads to pain. He thinks that you need to be courageous in order to face the uh, future without fear and anxiety. He thinks also that you need to be a good friend, that friendship helps bring you security, that you can have friends that you can count on. But to have good friends, you have to be a good friend. So things like being courageous and moderate and a good friend are all bound up with attaining this tranquil existence that he thinks is ultimately what we all desire. And does that tie into the views then of, of pain and pleasure that we've been talking about? And, and was he kind of critiquing the world that he was living in where many people believe that you needed stuff and you needed things to be happy? Oh, very much so. Yeah, so um, in addition to what he says about virtue, I mean, a, a central part of Epicurus's ethics is his analysis of the types of desires. So he thinks that some desires are what he calls natural and necessary desires. These are ones that we have to sort of uh, hardwired into us as animals, desires for things like food and drink and shelter. And these sorts of desires you should pursue, you should try to fulfill these desires, and you should try to arrange your life so that you, you know, can be confident that you'll obtain these things. You know, but he thought that you know, his contemporary Greek, you know, Athenians and other people in the Greek-speaking world, they had been kind of a corrupted by the values in their society to think that you need to have political power in order to gain security, or you need fame, or you need great amounts of wealth. And all of these things, he thought, um, don't ultimately bring you security. All they do is really leave you vulnerable to fortune, because if you have these outsized desires, then they're going to be more difficult to fulfill. They're going to uh, bring you into conflict with other people, and they generate anxiety. And so he thinks you need to get rid of these sorts of desires. And that's, I, I think, would be very much applicable to um, you know, contemporary Western society, too. You know, if he knew about Madison Street and the advertising industry, you know, he would regard that as just a factory for trying to generate these unnatural and unnecessary desires that really you know, bring people misery.
And he also had interesting ideas on things like justice and freedom, uh, also on friendship. That it's a it's a wide ranging philosophy with uh, a lot of nuance that again perhaps has been lost through the centuries and simplified. Yes, I think that's right. So uh, friendship, for instance, Epicurus is a hedonist. He thinks that ultimately, you know, what we're trying to get is pleasure. He also is an egoist in the sense that whose pleasure are you trying to get? You're trying to get your own pleasure ultimately, right? Uh, and a lot of people think that this is terribly selfish, but he thinks that, well, no, that's not quite right, though, because if you want to have a happy life, you can't do it on your own. People are not self-sufficient. So he stresses the ways that people need other people, that they're interdependent, and the importance of trust in having a happy life. So like I was saying um, just a minute or two ago, you know, you can't uh, have a secure life all on your own. You need the help of friends, but to have good friends, you yourself have to be a good friend. Actually, um, Cicero, who was a critic of Epicurus, but he uh, is one of our main sources on Epicureanism, said that the Epicureans even say that on self-interested grounds, you can justify loving your friend as much as you love yourself. You know, and Epicurus said that the wise person is willing even to die for the sake of their friend. Very interesting. Now, we do have an absolutely brilliant panel of experts tonight, but we're now just about to add to it as well, because uh, we're also delighted and honoured to be joined by Professor David Constan, who's Professor of Classics at NYU and is an expert in ancient Greek and Latin literature, as well as classical philosophy. And he's written incredible books on friendship, on pity, on the emotions, forgiveness, beauty, uh, and including groundbreaking work on Epicurus. And David, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Why, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be joining you. It's interesting we heard there about from Tim about how, you know, Cicero was a critic. And that's one thing about Epicurus. He seems to have been certainly somewhat controversial in that some admired his philosophy, but others were maybe challenged by it and, 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 and were concerned about it. And he definitely does seem to have divided opinion. Well, St. Augustine uh, thought that Epicurean ethics would, as he put it, win the palm be the top philosophy if they hadn't denied the immortality of the soul, which they without <laughs> doing um, systematically. I would um, add a nuance to the way you described Epicurus's concern with happiness and uh, civic life. Uh, you're absolutely right that Plato and Aristotle think of the virtuous life, the good life, in connection with the role of a citizen. Uh, it's well known that Aristotle's ethics is a prelude to his politics. Uh, the Epicureans uh, look at it differently. They see that people are have reached a stage of civilization in which, at least in certain parts, their basic needs are met. Uh, they're not going hungry. Uh, they're not dying from attacks by wild animals. And yet there's widespread discontent. People are restless. People are seeking after things continually um, that um, seem more than what they need, put themselves under undue stress for, and even uh, risk death for um, idle pursuits that uh, accumulating more and more wealth when they already have things, one more fancy dinner uh, with peacock tongues, as the Romans are fond of saying. Um, and why? That was his question. What is driving people? I remember a popular book many years ago 
which had the title, What Makes Sammy Run? What makes, in this case, uh, Sammy was a, a Hollywood mogul. What drives people when they seem to have all they possibly could want and yet seem continually discontent? I think that's the motive behind Epicureanism at one level, and um, it appeals to us today. Uh, now, he found various kinds of mistaken beliefs that cause people to behave in this manner, but above all, he's focused on one, and that is the fear of death. Uh, he seemed to think that at some deeper level, we harbor an anxiety about death, and we're trying, with all this accumulation of things, to build up defenses as though you could, you could protect yourself. And one of his sayings is, when it comes to death, we all live in an unwalled city. There are no walls to protect us. Um, there's um, the enemy is at not only at the gate. There is no gate. It's right there. So how do you deal with it? Um, well, he he wondered about this anxiety we have over death, and focused on several aspects of it. But one of them was the notion that we'd be punished in some kind of afterlife. Uh, Cicero poo-pooed this idea. He said. Um, uh, nobody today really believes that. And yet, when his own daughter died, to whom he was very deeply attached, he built a temple to her. He uh, was he disconsolate. He wanted himself to toy toy with ideas of immortality. In other words, somehow death really does we frighten us. We really do want to be secure against it. And Epicurus's solution was the soul disintegrates with the body. That's it. There is no more. Look to today. Um, he said the reason we're afraid of dying is we spend all our time anticipating a future and don't look at what's right in front of us. Uh, that kind of um, perception is at the core, to my way of thinking, of Epicurean philosophy and what gives it its um, relevance today. And what about when Epicurus himself faced death? There are different accounts. Some say that uh, he he faced it was I think a, a urinary urinary tract infection or a blockage, and it was very painful. But in in one account, uh, he, he he bore this very bravely and and heroically. Others say that that account was a forgery. Do we know how he faced death then himself? Well, these uh, stories are plausible. Um, the sources are pretty good. Cicero admired Epicurus's character. He didn't admire his philosophy, but he admired his character. He thought he was a, a good person, a fine person, and that he did have a succeed in a certain tranquility of soul. Um, uh, Epicurus's advice in painful situations was to look back on the past, anticipate the future, and bear in mind that the most painful, physically painful um, events are probably short-lived. Uh, this in a society before modern medicine um, had more plausibility that if you were in extreme pain, it probably wasn't going to last very long. Um, and this was the best defense one had. After all, Epicurus' view was that uh, we achieve what it is our nature desires when the body is free from pain and the mind is free from uh, perturbation caused by various kinds of anxiety. Well, he was addressing the mind. He wasn't a medical doctor. He said a philosophy that doesn't cure 
our psyche, our souls, is as useless as medicine that doesn't cure the body. So he saw a division there. But um, so it's plausible that a person who thought this way would have achieved a certain kind of calm in the face of death. I, uh, he even suggested that you could be happy when you were on the rack. Uh, the Stoics had a similar idea. It's, it strikes me they sometimes went to extremes in expressing just how tranquil and calm and serene one could be under extreme physical pain. Uh, but then perhaps um, I overlook the fact that uh, in antiquity, people were more accustomed to pain than we are today. Uh, they knew what they were talking about when they spoke about intense pain. Without having anesthetics, um, uh, in a warlike society where I imagine that you know, one out of every three people had a serious wound, at least adult males, and um, childbirth can't have been a pleasure. Uh, people were, you know, they, they knew what they meant, and they said, yes, it's, it's endurable if you have the right attitude. And it's getting the right attitude. That's our business as philosophers. Very good. Now, uh, I'm fascinated by the Roman reception of Epicureanism, and we've heard about uh, the problems that Cicero had with Epicurus. And Monica, I know this is uh, one of your specialities, and I wonder, could you talk us through how, how Epicurus and the philosophy was received by the Romans, and who, who liked it, and, and, and who was hostile? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Patrick. Um, well, it, it seems to be particularly the case that uh, Epicureanism involved, uh, uh, attracted a particularly uh, strong following in the first century BC, um, which I think is perhaps related to the fact that this was a real kind of age of anxiety, we might say, and maybe in that respect, not not unlike our own. So, you know, the, the first part of the century was dominated by civil wars. There was a lot of social uh, upheaval, social instability. And Cicero says that the Epicureans had, had sort of taken over the whole of Italy. He mentions these two apparently rather popularizing writers, uh, Amaphinius and Catius, who he says had, you know, taken over the, the uh, imagination of the lower classes. And he's very exercised about this. Uh, but interestingly, we all also have the names of quite a number of members of the upper classes who were um, attracted to, who had a sort of perhaps a partial commitment, if not a full commitment to uh, Epicurean thought. So this included, for example, Cicero's bosom buddy Atticus. They were great friends and they somehow managed this despite Cicero's hostility to Epicureanism. Um, Julius Caesar's father-in-law, Lucius Calpurnius Piso, uh, was the patron of Philodemus, whose, whose name was mentioned earlier. Um, even Caesar himself has been suspected at times of having at least a kind of partial Epicurean uh, affiliation. Um, but I think this is particularly interesting because Epicurean ideals clash in very obvious ways with the traditional ideology of the Roman upper classes, not just in the sense that as um, as Tim was mentioning, this was a very uh, sort of egocentric philosophy, whereas Roman uh, upper class mores at least supposedly revolved around public service. So you became um, uh, a duty on political roles for the public good, not for your own self-aggrandizement, uh, at least in theory. Duty was, was very important. But also because the Romans had a, a very strong sort of suspicion of pleasure. Pleasure was supposed to make you um, almost sort of turn you into a woman rather than a proper man. Men were supposed to be tough and austere steer, not, not uh, um, um, sort of soft, pleasure-loving types. And this is something that, that you know, hostile witnesses, and uh, Martin mentioned Horace's sort of self-mocking um, reference to himself as a pig, but that's an idea that we also find in hostile sources too. Uh, so Cicero in that respect is, is perhaps more typical than some of the more 
favourable reactions we find towards Epicurean ideology. Um, but I think it's interesting, I mean, it clearly figures like, like Piso managed to perhaps to compromise, to reconcile their Epicurean beliefs with uh, taking part in, in public life. And I, Piso became a, a consul, he even became censor, which was absolutely the highest office of all, despite his, uh, his Epicurean interests. Very good. James, I want to bring you in as well, because it's, it's very interesting when we look at some of the criticisms and critiques that, that that Epicurus was making of society. I wonder how plausible were his his critiques and his, I suppose, his prescriptions for how you could make things better and avoid being miserable. Um, it's a very good question. The, 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 they would be plausible, I suppose. The plausibility, in a kind of philosophical sense, would will will depend upon the extent to which you agree with his overall account of what the human good is, because from that follow these various criticisms. Um, but I think um, there are obvious ways in which he could point to, I think, as other people have mentioned, the way um, people were living their lives in a way that, at least from his perspective, seemed not only to be failing to acquire the happiness that he thought was uh, the human good and flowed from our human nature, but was positively getting in the way and exacerbating distress. So, um, one of the one of the things, for example, he thinks, and this I imagine is uh, the root of many of the um, uh, very negative reactions to him. One of the things he saw very much at the as uh, at the root of people's misery was on the one hand a fear of death, which we've had um, some discussion of already, but on the other hand, um, uh, an attitude to the divine that he thought was severely mistaken. So I think the ancient world, it, it's hard to overstate the, the way in which the ancient Greek and the Roman world was thoroughly suffused with ritual and uh, religious practice of various kinds, both on the grand civic level and also on the level of everyday families. You would have your own little shrines and you'd do your own little rituals and so on, and which were either to prevent the gods being angry with you or to win their favour. And Epicurus thinks this is all entirely misguided and um, the efforts you put into this are contrary to your own well-being. And James, do you think there was a split at the time between those who who followed this new idea that death was nothing to us, uh, as, as you know, you, you show in your book, and and those who were maybe uh, more fearful about this and wanted the wanted the solace that you would get from the gods? It's perhaps so. I mean, um, what's interesting about Epicurus is not so much that he he says that death isn't something to be afraid of. I mean, philosophically more or less everybody would be saying that. Um, Plato says death isn't something to be afraid of because, in fact, um, that's freeing your soul from your body and so on. The reason Epicurus thinks death isn't to be afraid of is that it's the absolute annihilation of you. That's the end of everything. You simply disperse into your constituent atoms. Um, so where he really um, is, is being innovative is the grounds for these various claims. And those grounds are the ones that I think people are finding um, in the ancient world might find either very conducive and they, they're quite happy to accept, or else they think they are 
misguided or perhaps even dangerous because they undermine the very kind of core beliefs and values that hold their society together. Okay, well, you're listening to Talking History on News Talk. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking to the author of a book on Epicurus and the Art of Happiness about some of the lessons we can take from studying his life and his work. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Epicurus. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. John Sellers, who's reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London and a member of Wolfson College, Oxford, and who is an expert on Stoicism and its reception. And his books include The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness. John, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what do you think is the benefit of studying someone like Epicurus? Well, I think Epicurus has lots of very practical ideas aimed at trying to um, help people in how they live their lives. And he's quite explicit that this is what he's trying to do. So he says at one point that, that philosophy is an empty subject unless it's in some way offering some kind of therapy for human suffering. So he thinks that that's what he's trying to do. And I think the sorts of therapies that he offers are as relevant today as they were when they were first written. And in terms of the history of philosophy, is he a major figure? And I wonder, was he someone who was controversial in his own lifetime? In a sense, he's not a major figure. He was a, he's a slightly marginal figure in some respects, but a very important one. There's a sense in which he stands outside the mainstream of um, Greek philosophy Many of the other philosophers that we know of, people like Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, they all trace themselves back to Socrates. Um, And Socrates had famously said that it's virtue that's the most important thing if we want to live a good life. And Epicurus stands out of that tradition that's very much focused on virtue. And he says, no, no, it's all about pleasure. That's the thing we ought to be thinking about instead. So there's a sense in which he's a dissenting voice from the mainstream. And I wonder, does that dissenting voice make him then a little bit controversial? Because it's it's that connection then with fine food and wine that he gets associated with. But it's, even though that's not quite the pleasant life that he was thinking of, it means that's what he gets associated with. Absolutely. And I mean, a couple of controversial ideas in Epicurus. So that would be one of them. And another would be the thought that the gods have no interest in us, that he he's not an atheist. He thinks gods exist, but he thinks they're off somewhere else doing their own thing. And they're completely disinterested in human life. And so we ought not to worry about them. And those two ideas together, the hedonism and this kind of... Um, indifference towards the gods makes him controversial, particularly um, later when Christianity is the um, the dominant point of reference. So if we do want to lead lead and live a happy life, uh, if we follow his instructions, what should we be doing? Well, as I was saying a moment ago, he thinks that it's pleasure that's the key to living a good life. So we ought to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Um, All of our sense of happiness and well-being ultimately comes down to how much pleasure and pain we experience. Um, There are two really significant parts of what Epicurus has to say about this that differ him from the gluttonous pursuit of food and wine image of hedonism that many of us have. The first is that he thinks that it's avoiding pain that's more important than pursuing pleasure. Um, 
that's really what we need to do. We need to focus on avoiding pain, not enjoying as much food as possible. So we ought to pursue food in order to avoid the pain of hunger. But once we've overcome the pain of hunger and we're, we've got enough, we're satisfied, we don't need to keep pursuing more and more of that kind of physical pleasure. So that's one key thought. And the second key thought is that we're not just concerned with physical pleasure and pain like hunger. We're also concerned with psychological pleasure and pain. So the sorts of anxieties and concerns that might keep people up awake at night. What we want to do is avoid that kind of psychological pain and suffering. Um, and that's where the idea that philosophy is some kind of therapy that comes comes into play. What we want to do is to avoid those kind of psychological anxieties that can really inhibit us from living a good life. What do you think Epicurus got wrong? Oh, that's a very tricky question. I mean, I suppose one might say that this focus just on pleasure and pain is perhaps a bit too simplistic. Um, we'd all like to avoid pain, avoid psychological pain, such as anxiety or fear. But is that enough for someone to be able to live a really good, satisfying life? Or do we all want a bit more? Is there something extra that we want? We want a further kind of, of satisfaction. He doesn't really address those sorts of issues so much. Very good. And finally, what would you see as his greatest legacy? Well, we've talked a bit about the the, the, the ethical side of, of, of Epicurus. He's also a materialist and in particular an atomist. So he believes that everything that exists is made up of atoms, tiny little bits of matter that recombine to make the physical world that we're familiar with. And of course, that idea has a huge impact on the development of early modern science. And we now take the, the kind of theory of atomism as you know, a, a commonplace theory. So that's where he's had a really big impact, I would say. Well, my thanks to Dr. John Sellers, author of The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness for joining us tonight. And uh, it's interesting. Do you think Epicurus would be annoyed the fact that he's really associated now with Epicurean food halls and uh, that his name has taken on a meaning that he perhaps might not have intended? Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Those kind of criticisms of Epicurus's philosophy were already present in antiquity. They may even have been circulating when he was alive. So I imagine he would have just given a wry smile. He'd heard all of that sort of thing before. He'd heard it all before. Excellent stuff, John. Well, we'll be back with more on Epicurus right after this break. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about the philosophy of Epicurus. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by my brilliant panel of experts, Professor James Warren, Professor Monica Gale, Dr. Martin Brady, Professor David Constan and Professor Tim O'Keefe. And Monica, let's talk about Lucretius because I was jumping the gun there. This is this uh, uh, Epicurean poet. He wrote this uh, big poem on the nature of things. And talk to us about where that fitted in with uh, Epicurus and, and the philosophy. Yeah, so this is a really interesting kind of paradox, the whole idea of writing an Epicurean poem, um, in the sense that Epicurus himself seems to have sort of taken a rather negative line towards literature in general, um, for I think essentially two reasons. And one is that Greek poetry, anyone who's read any classical poetry will know, is largely mythological in content. And that was something Epicurus had no time for, you know, all these stories about gods intervening in human life. We don't want any of that. So that's one issue. The other issue is really the just the cultural prestige that literature had in ancient Greek and indeed in Roman society to some extent, that Homer particularly has a kind of authority just 
because he's Homer, because he's uh, a text that everyone studies from the uh, equivalent of primary school onwards. Um, and again, you know, Epicurus is very unhappy about this because Homer teaches you to be afraid of death. He teaches you to be afraid of the gods, and we don't want any of that, according to Epicurus. So he seems to have said, you know, don't don't bother to, you know, you could read poetry, you might enjoy it, but don't bother to study it and don't put any effort into writing it, he, he seems to have said. So it's really interesting that we find this uh, uh, Roman writer contemporary with Cicero writing six books. So this is a, an epic nearly on a scale with, with Homer or with, with Virgil, all about Epicurean physics, funny sort of thing to write an, an epic about, uh, about Epicurean cosmology, the origins of human civilization, uh, and so on. Um, so as I say, it's kind of paradoxical. I mean, I suppose we could see really three possible reactions to Epicurus's hostility to poetry. One is to say, OK, we're just not going to write poetry. Or maybe we're going to write poetry, but of a rather um, sort of light kind. So this is how Philodemus seems to have reacted. Philodemus also wrote poetry, but he wrote epi uh, epigrams, so very short poems, sort of clever, witty, pithy little poems, but ones that, uh, as one of his commentators says, give the impression of not having demanded any effort. Now, that's clearly really different from what, what Lucretius is doing. But I think what's so brilliant about Lucretius's poem is that he sees the potential of that cultural prestige that Epic has. Instead of writing it off the way Epicurus does, he tries to appropriate it, to kind of take it over for Epicureanism. So instead of writing about gods, instead of writing about heroes, he writes about Epicurus himself, he writes about nature. So Epicurus is kind of the hero of the poem. He's the equivalent of Achilles or Aeneas in the, the Aeneid. Nature is very commonly personified by Lucretius. So also appears as a kind of, almost as a military commander, commanding the atoms to um, recombine and combine in different ways. Um, and as well, I think Lucretius very brilliantly takes advantage of some of the more kind of formalistic aspects of epic. So anyone who's read Homer or Virgil will remember those sort of set piece similes, you get long extended similes where, for example, a hero is compared to a lion or to uh, a flooding river. Well, what Lucretius does is to use that form as a kind of scientific analogy. Um, so, for example, when he wants to get us to imagine atoms, now obviously we can't see atoms, how are we going to imagine what they're like? He says, you know, think about when you see dust um, particles in a sunbeam. Everyone's seen this. You can see them all kind of zinging about. What we would call Brownian motion uh, is uh, equivalent. And in fact, it's, it's caused that the, the movement of the dust particles is caused by the movement of the atoms, uh, according to Lucretius. But the way he explains this is to use something very like the epic simile. Um, alliteration was a, a very typical in, in particularly Roman epic too, and he makes very neat um, use of alliteration either to, co to convey a, a, an impression of sort of really impassioned uh, preaching or perhaps to help us again to imagine scenes of nature or uh, scenes of movement at the atomic level, for example. Um, so it's really a very, very clever way of taking over a, a, a literary form that Epicurus was rather hostile to. And instead of rejecting it, he uses it a, as a way of trying to persuade us to become Epicureans, really. Um, so it's a very appealing poem. I really recommend it. Um, bits of it are quite hard going, but at his most accessible, Lucretius really kind of, you know, he grabs hold of you. He has this very impassioned manner where he um, really tries to bring it across to us how uh, 
the pursuit of wealth is terrible. It's terrible for us. It's terrible for society. We can get just as much pleasure, he says. There's a lovely little passage where he says we can get just as much pleasure from enjoying a simple picnic with friends in the sunshine on the on the flower strewn grass. So uh, very sort of poetic vignettes uh, used by him as a way of kind of winning over the reader, I suppose. Martin, it's a very clever idea to use the poetry to present the ideas in a in a simple but accessible way. It very much is. And what Monica was saying there about the difference between the kind of artistic and uh, trickier bits of Lucretius, he knew that himself. He described his, his poetry as wormwood mixed with honey. So wormwood was the kind of the medicine. And just as they say in Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. His poetry was the honey, which made it sweeter, which made it more palatable and easier on the ear. And really the passion, the intensity that comes out in Lucretius. I see that most when he's talking about things like gods and religion and freeing us all from the the, the excessive control that these kind of predominant uh, narratives tried to exert over us. He sees Epicurus as a kind of god himself or a divine figure in that he frees us from religion. I've got a couple of translations of Lucretius which really bring that out forcefully and eloquently for me. This one is from Cyril Bailey and it's a praise of Epicurus. Epicurus, when the life of man lay foul to see and groveling upon the earth, crushed by the weight of religion, which showed her face from the realms of heaven, lowering upon mortals with dreadful gaze. "'Twas a man of Greece who dared first to raise his mortal eyes to meet her, and first to stand forth to meet her, him neither the stories of the gods, nor thunderbolts checked, nor the sky with its revengeful roar." And there's another passage where he describes very passionately, with a great fury, the things which religion has done which are harmful to humans, harmful to people. He speaks in this case of a mythological episode that Monica was alluding to, uh, an episode at uh, Aulis in the Trojan War, where Agamemnon needs to sacrifice his daughter, his daughter Iphigenia. He needs to kill her so that the gods will open up the winds for him and will allow him a favourable wind to sail for Troy. He has to perform this unspeakable act of murdering his own kin. So Lucretius says, this is a 1916 translation by William Ellery Leonard, It is that same religion, oftener far, hath bred the foul impieties of men. As once at Aulis, the elected chiefs, the foremost of heroes, the Greek counsellors, defiled Diana's altar, virgin god, with Agamemnon's daughter foully slain, a sinless woman, sinfully undone, a parent felt her on her wedding day, making his child a sacrificial beast to give the ship's auspicious winds for Troy. Such are the crimes to which religion leads. Absolutely brilliant, Martin. Well, now, earlier in the week, I spoke to Dr. Catherine Wilson, who's the visiting presidential professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and who's the author of How to Be an Epicurean. And I began by asking her about how influential was Epicurus on political thinkers in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, such as Thomas Hobbes and John Stuart Mill. I suppose we can't really say that uh, that Hobbes and Mill studied Epicurus um, or Lucretius, his, his follower, but Every educated person in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century would have, uh, would probably have read uh, Diogenes Laertius's Lives of the Philosophers and known about uh, Epicurus from his sayings and letters, and they would have read uh, Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. So what, what might they have been getting out of this? There's several central ideas here. Um, one 
has to do, of course, with the process of secularization, the the attempt to reconstruct political theory without reference to Christian doctrine. So there's, of course, a long history of cooperation and antagonism between the church and uh, the, the the princes and the and the aristocracy and the monarchy. Um, but what uh, theorists like Hobbes were trying to do, Hobbes, Pufendorf, uh, other theorists of the 17th and early 18th century were trying to do, was to develop an account of politics that didn't depend on ideas of um, providence, of God's selection of kings, of just warfare in terms of the criteria provided by um, by, by the clerics, by scholastic philosophers. And Hobbes really, um, one of the central ideas of Epicureanism is that social relations are just constructed by our minds. There are no natural aristocrats, there are no natural rulers, um, of course, no authority conferred by God. We decide, or we should decide, um, who our rulers are going to be and we should do so on the basis of their utility, what contribution they're making to our safety and welfare. So Hobbes argued that the function of the sovereign is not to be a charismatic leader or to extend territory. It's just to ensure the, um, the safety of the citizens and the viability of, of uh, commerce and travel. So welfare for all. So, um, Patrick, we've been talking about uh, the influence of Epicurean ideas on 17th century philosophers like uh, Thomas Hobbes and uh, maybe later philosophers like, like Mill. But um, it's important to remember maybe that Hobbes was also a natural philosopher interested in science. And that was the other uh, great contribution of the revival of Epicurean ideas on um, the theory of nature through the 17th and 18th centuries especially. Uh, Patrick, before we go, uh, I just want to say one thing about a point on which I tend to disagree with Epicurus. There are not many, but this is one. Epicurus thought that uh, philosophers, uh, that is, everybody in his community, should not have children. And I understand the reasons why he said that, but um, I would have to personally disagree. So it's an interesting subject because Epicurus was um, actually very keen on sex and sex with women. So his objection to child-rearing didn't have anything to do with homosexuality, as uh, Plato's objection to having children probably did. But uh, he just didn't see himself as settling down and raising a family. And he's certainly right that children are a source of worry, expense, and taking up your time and keeping you awake at night. Uh, but he saw only the negative side of having children. And even though everybody admits that uh, those are uh, difficult and sometimes painful and expensive years, and people don't, in fact, rate childcare as one of their favorite activities, once you've had children, your feeling generally is that you wouldn't have wanted to miss this experience that it's a very enriching and entertaining and wonderful experience to have had children. So I think uh, he was speaking from a position of not having had 
experience. And since for the Epicureans, all knowledge begins with experience, um, right? That was a that was a defect in his case. So I think he couldn't appreciate the pleasures, though he did appreciate the pains. And uh, we don't have to follow him on everything. And a very wise advice there from Dr. Catherine Wilson about how we don't have to follow him on everything. Uh, David, I want to bring you in, Professor David Constant. Uh, in terms of following him on everything, it is it is remarkable, isn't it, how in the 21st century Epicurus is so popular and there are so many books, not just about the, the writings and the philosophy, but about how we can apply them to our own lives. Uh, you're right. Um, uh, there's... Of course, it's the fashion uh, for ancient philosophy generally. There are similar books on Stoicism and Plato, and I remember one book called Less Prozac, More Plato. Um, That was a while ago. And so um, uh, there's um, uh, perhaps today um, something of a more hedonistic uh, attitude toward life, a sense that we should care for simpler things, but I would like to add um, just a small codicil to what John was saying about Epicurean pleasure, just briefly, because I think it it may, I'm sure he'll agree, and it will help clarify something. Uh, He was controversial in his time for arguing that pleasure consists in the removal of pain. It's not just that what we want is to be without pain, it's that that is the maximum pleasure of which we are capable. So, it's not that we get pleasure from eating. The maximum pleasure is when we are full and content. Not overfull, but we're not hungry. That's the maximum pleasure. So he has an idea of pleasure as a stable condition of the self. When there, and he has the same idea about the psyche. If our psyche is functioning, our soul, our minds are functioning correctly, unperturbed by foolish anxieties, then that's the highest pleasure, that's the tranquility at which we aim. Um, Some people found that silly. Uh, The absence of pain is a kind of middle state. It's neither pleasant nor painful, and the two extremes are pleasure and pain. But there are very good arguments for what Epicurus uh, believed, and I'll just give one example. Um, uh, If we think of pleasure as... um, fulfilling an absence, a need, like we get pleasure when we eat because we're hungry, well, then we've always got to imagine ourselves in a painful condition, being hungry, in order to experience any pleasure. And Plato had already pointed out the contradiction here. We have to be in pain in order to have pleasure. (laughs) That didn't sound right. And so Epicurus turned it around. He said, as we achieve less and less hunger, we're enjoying ourselves more and more. It's actually the increment in our well-being, in the elimination of hunger that we're enjoying. And that's why as we get to be full to a satisfied state, that's the pleasure we were seeking and that's the pleasure we've achieved. Uh, And this is um, a more plausible um, view than the other view, which we should always stimulate radical desires. We should always be in a state of need. We should always be in pain because that's the only way to have pleasure. And there were contemporaries of Epicurus who advocated exactly this view. And and finally, uh, maybe Tim, I might leave the last word to you. It is a remarkable legacy for a Greek philosopher that there is so much to unpick and so much that people can apply to their own lives uh, thousands of years later. 
Yes, um, I agree with you that it is pretty remarkable. And to kind of pick up on you know, your question to David before, I think that it is very much applicable to society today, that if you have this idea that um, you know, pleasure isn't just sort of stimulation of the senses or active sensation, it's a matter of being content, of having enough, um, and why should we call this a pleasure at all? It's because we can enjoy this, right? We can find the state of being free of want, of being free of need, of being tranquil, of having peace of mind. We find this deeply satisfying and enjoyable. And if you believe that, then you can look, for instance, especially at a lot of society today, and you can see that the way our consumer culture is set up is actually very badly set up from the point of view of helping people attain tranquility. Well, and maybe we can use that in our own lives to try to live better. And that's a, like, a brilliant note in which to end our discussion. There was so much to unpick in the discussion, but a brilliant panel of experts, Professor James Warren, Professor Monica Gale, Dr. Martin Brady, Professor David Constant, Professor Tim O'Keefe, and then we also heard from Dr. Catherine Wilson and Dr. John Sellers. Well, that's the end of tonight's show. My thanks to Susan Calp, my producer, Peter Malloy and Sound. Next week, we'll be finding out about Irish lives in America, the legacies of the Magdalene laundries, and threatening letters and death threats in 19. 19- Century Ireland. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night.